Well, all right, praise the Lord. We're back in Ephesians chapter 5. If you brought a Bible to church, point your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. If you didn't grab a Bible on your way in this morning, then there's one provided for you in the pew ahead of you. We'll be on page 675 of the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible and would like one, please take ours. That is our gift to you. Um, But here we are back in the book of Ephesians. As I mentioned earlier, here at Cornerstone Pickwell, we put a high emphasis on the preaching of the Word, and the way we do the preaching of the Word is verse by verse. So we like to take the Bible, and we, let, we like to let the Holy Spirit drive the narrative, and rather than me coming up with these clever little things to, you know, you know just kind of make you feel great and, and, you know, prepare you for your week, I let the Holy Spirit kind of decide where to go with things. Now that has an advantage, and it has uh, somewhat of a difficult thing, and which is that sometimes we encounter verses like Ephesians 5, 3, 4, 5, and 6, where we talk about unfun things to talk about. Listen, if I were given the directive and, and to told where to decide to go everywhere, I would uh, probably not choose this as a subject, and not in a new church, not among guests. Not I wouldn't do that because uh, I like to cherry pick and I'd like to make you like me. So... Um, that's just how I would do it, but that's not how God has decided to do it. And so we're going to broach the subject of sexual immorality this morning. And, uh, you know, it may, my wife and I were, were talking about this on the way in. It, it, it's an important subject. I was telling her on the way in, I'm just like, I'm just not looking forward to preaching this sermon. I'm just not. And, uh, you know, she said, but it's an important thing. It's an important subject because of the culture that we live in, because of its prevalence in our culture, because, because of its prevalence in our lives. We need to have some parameters. We need to understand what God's morality is around this issue of sex. Because I'm not, look, I know it's one thing for me as a preacher to go to you and to say, this is what God has told you to do with your time. This is what God has told you to do with your, with your uh, abilities. And this is what God has told you to do with your money. That's one thing. But, you know, it's a whole other thing for me to go to you and say, this is what God wants you to do with your, like, uh, sexual organs. <laughs> That's a whole other matter. That's one of those areas that we like to keep to ourselves and do what we want with them. Um, but nevertheless, here we are preaching through this book and on this subject. So we're going to be reading Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 3 through 6. It was written as a letter to... A group of Christians in the town of Ephesus it was written by a couple thousand years ago by a man named Paul. He was a short, balding Jewish guy, and he wrote to some people who lived in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. You guys have been there. And uh, he wrote, and he gave them these instructions. You can read it with me. Ephesians 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity and or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Christ and God. Let's pray. Father, I need you this morning. I ask that you would speak through your word to your people. I pray that what I say this morning would not be from me, but it would be from your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us instructions on how to live our lives in a way which honors the Lord and God that we serve. We thank you, Lord, that the Bible isn't so aloof that it doesn't discuss real life subjects. And we pray that our hearts would be ready this morning. I pray that your people's hearts would be ready to receive your word. And to align themselves with the sort of life which is befitting of a man and a woman who carries your name. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said amen. When you read through the Bible, you find that, you may find this surprising, but I, I, at least I find it surprising, 
It's an intensely practical book. It was written, as I said, by Paul, who was a real man, who lived a real life, served real people. It wasn't written by, like, you know, monks in a tower far away from the real life people. It was written to real people who dealt with real issues on the ground, boots on the ground, in the trenches kinds of people who dealt with issues that you and I sometimes deal with as well. Issues of of what to do with sex and our sexual desires and what's right about it, what's wrong about it, how to navigate the culture we live in, how to talk about sex, how to think about sex. And so... When we read through the Bible, it gives us instructions on these real matters. And the first instruction that Paul gives to us is in verse 3. That sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness should not even be named among us. This, these three verbs, these three words are all related. Sexual immorality, sexual impurity, and sexually motivated covetousness. And they're so antithetical to the Christian life that Paul says there shouldn't even be, the NIV uses this helpful phrase, it shouldn't be even a hint of it in your life. There shouldn't even be a hint of it. The word translated sexual immorality is porneia, which is uh, the New King James. If, if you read from the New King James, it'll translate that word as fornication, which means sex outside of marriage. But I, that's too narrow of a, a, a word. Mo, other translations, most other translations prefer the phrase sexual immorality because here's the reason. Porneia is a word which is just like, it's sort of like a catch-all junk drawer term, which just means any sexual sin. All sexual sin of all kinds fall into that underneath that term. And it's important. I I think God, the Holy Spirit, is really smart when he chooses the words that he chose to put in the Bible. Rather than coming out and explicitly naming every sexual sin, he gives it just a junk drawer term, which is really wise of him because, you know, we're so freaky that we'd come up with words that aren't in the Bible and be like, well, it doesn't say anything about this. I can just go do what I want. But Holy Spirit's like, uh-uh, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to give you a junk drawer term. It's going to cover everything that is wrong about sex. And it falls underneath that. And that's the sin, sexual immorality, porneia. It's where we get the, the term pornography. So the Bible says we shouldn't have any hint of porneia in our life. Not even a hint of it. No sexual sin. That's what it means. But what is it? What is sexual immorality? Well, it's, it's like, well, it's, in order to understand what's immoral about sex, you have to understand what's moral about sex. What, what moral parameters did God draw around sex? And so what we're going to do is, real quick, for a few moments, we're going to go into the scriptures. We're going to learn from the Bible what God's parameters, what makes up the, the, the moral parameters of sex. When you survey the scripture, you learn at least these three things. There's more to learn, of course, but at least these three things. If you're following along in your program on the backside, you can fill these in as we go. First thing you learn about sex in, from the scripture is this. Number one, sex was God's idea. He invented it. Sex itself can't be wrong because God invented it. It was his idea. He came up with it. Can't be gross. He created it. It was his idea. So that's important for us to understand. There's been streams in Christianity which have misunderstood that and have made sex a bad thing. But it's not a bad thing. It can be a bad thing, but it isn't inherently a bad thing. It was God created it. It was his idea. He invented it. Came up with the idea. In Genesis 2, we learn that after God created the first man, Adam, he declared over Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. You remember that? Now, I don't know what Adam was doing, which led God to this conclusion. I don't know what he was doing there by himself in the garden. I, I have an idea, right? If you, ever, if you ever happened upon a man who thought he was by himself, you probably agreed with God. It's not good that a man would be alone. Like, why are you eating cereal out of a frying pan, okay? 
well, all the bowls are dirty, man. So, you know, it's, it, it is not good that a man should be alone, right? If you, if you happen upon a man who lives by himself, do not go in his bathroom. It is a bad decision. He's not good. And so God says, Adam, listen, I love you, buddy. It's, I'm gonna, I, you're going to need some help here. You're going to need some help. And so God takes Adam and he makes his, his wife, Eve, the first woman. And um, uh, understand that Eve was not given to Adam to be like his doormat. And, and she wasn't there to like clean up his dishes and fold his laundry. He was, she was to be a helper. Which, by the way, is not a derogatory term in any way. The Holy Spirit is called a helper. God is called a helper. She is to come alongside. She's beside him, not underneath him. She's beside him to help him to fulfill what it is that God has called him to do. That's, that's what that's about. So God gives, he, God presents the first woman, Eve, to the first man, Adam, in the very first marriage ceremony in the history of the world. It's beautiful. God presides over the first marriage ceremony. Why is it that you think that the wife, the, the, the bride is presented to the groom? Because that's how God did it. God took Eve and presented her to Adam. And then when he's seeing, he, he sees his bride, he sees Eve, whom God has made for him, he does this. Gentlemen, pay very close attention. He sings over her. He sings over her. He, he spouts sonnets over her. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You know how it goes. And then in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says this. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. Means sex. They shall become one. Two shall become one. One flesh. God's idea. God presented Eve to Adam. God came up with the idea of sex and he presided over the first ceremony and there you go. The two shall become one. He made that declaration over all of humanity. And so that brings me to point number two about sex. Sex is created by God between, to be between one man, one woman, in the context of marriage. Did you see that? God took Eve, presented him to Adam, marriage ceremony. He sings over her, sort of like guys doing guitars and play those two or three chord songs to their spouse. And then God declares, this is how I want it to be for all of humanity. The man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. One man, one woman, marriage. That's the moral parameters of sex. So what we can derive from point number two is this. Anything related to sex outside of one man, one woman in the context of marriage thus constitutes immoral sex. Does that make sense? One man, one woman, marriage. That's sex. That's moral sex. Anything outside of that is sinful. Third point about sex. This we get from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It is, sex is selfless. Selfless. Sinless, here, use a lot of S's. Sinless sex is selfish. Sinful sex is self, wait, did I do that wrong? Sinless sex is selfless. Sin, you guys understand what I'm trying to get to, right? Okay, Sally sells seashells. Let's do that one, okay? Let's institute that one. Um, sex is a selfless act. When it honors God, it is selfless. It is not selfish. It is selfless. Sex is a good thing, a holy thing, God ordained to be shared between a husband and a wife. And it functions to bring them together to stave off temptation. Here's where we get this information. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 7. You can turn there if you want. But here's basically what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And the feminist head does circles. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again 
so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex in marriage is to be frequent and free and selfless. It's meant to bring glory to God and to bring married couples together. It's meant to keep the marriage healthy. It's meant to keep the marriage safe. It's selfless. It's not a selfish act. It is a selfless act. It is for the health and safety of the marriage. Sex is not the only uh, barometer of the health of a marriage. It's not the only measurement, but it's one of. It's a good one. So those three things from the scripture, God, sex is God's idea. Sex is between one man, one wife in the context of marriage, and sex is to be selfless. So now we have a baseline for determining what is right and what is wrong about sex. Anything outside of that context is sinful. So someone once told me that you, there's no, you can't sin sexually in the context of marriage with your, with your wife, with your husband, and that's wrong. Because sex is meant to be selfless. And when it's selfish, even in the context of marriage, it can be sinful. Selfish sex, on the other hand, is sexually immoral. It's a perversion of something pure and holy that God has designed for marital intimacy. Lust is one prime example of selfish versions of sex. Because what lust does is it looks at something that you don't have. It lusts after it, wants to use it for myself to satiate a desire in me. There's no selflessness in lust. And that's what makes it sinful. The world will use words like, it's okay to look, just just don't touch. Uh, I, I heard a lady say one time, well, I don't care where he gets his appetite from as long as he eats at home, as long as he has dinner at home. And that's wrong. I heard another guy say one time, to lust after a woman is the same as committing adultery. And you should know the guy who said that was, was God. To look at a woman or a man with lustful intent, it's the same as committing adultery in the eyes of God. Same sin. Yeah, but I didn't do anything. It doesn't matter. You committed adultery with her in your heart. With him in your heart. We'll get to more of that here in a moment. I like to look at sex like this. I'm talking about parameters. It's like fire. Fire in the right context is a good thing. You have a fireplace in your home. You have fire in the fireplace. It warms the home. It brings, it brings warmth to the home. It, you can cook with it. It's a wonderful thing in the right context. But fire outside of the fireplace in your home could burn the whole place to the ground. You see how that works? Fire, sex in the right context is a good thing. It brings warmth to the marriage. It keeps things together. It keeps people together. But when it's taken out of that context, it could destroy the whole thing. And so, I should say this. God is not up in heaven. God didn't create you with sexual desires up in heaven and then tell you, you can't even, don't even, don't even touch them. Don't even mess with it. It's, it's wrong. It's sinful. I'm going to send you to hell for being, you know the word. God's not up there being a tyrant telling you what you can and can't do with, the, with your sexual organs. This is for your joy. When we abandon God's plan for sex and sexuality, and we decide to do it on our own and take it out of the context with with which he created, inside of which he created it, we cut ourselves off from God's plan for it, and it destroys us. It steals our joy in it. This isn't because God doesn't want good things for you. It's because he knows its place. This is why in the Song of Solomon, there's a couple of times it uses the phrase, do not wake in love until it pleases, which is a poetic way of saying, don't, 
don't turn, don't, don't turn that switch on until you're ready, which is marriage. I have young people sometimes ask, what's, where's the line? What's right? When I'm dating, what's right? Is it right to hold hands? Is it right to kiss? Is it right to go on beyond that? Like which base? We always, it goes to baseball. First base, second base, third base. What's, which base is sinful? Like when do I go from like second base to midway through second base to third base? Now it's sinful. It's not about the line. The Bible never gives you a line. It gives you time. It says, it's not about your line there. It's not about crossing that line. It's about the time. When is sex appropriate? It's the right time, which is marriage, which is in the context of marriage. So this is for your joy. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that God made your body. It belongs to him. He paid for it. It doesn't belong to you. And so, you, you know, you dishonor God with your body. Sexual immorality is a different kind of sin than any other kind of sin because it's a sin against your own body. It, it kind of thwarts God's plan in and through your body in some kind of way. So when someone says, it's just a little bit of sex, it's not. It really isn't. It's not just sex. It's a very important, big deal. We'll get to how serious of a matter this is when we get to verse 5 and 6. But let's move on to verse uh, 4. Or verse, let's keep on verse 3. I've got, I got to touch on coveting real quick. Verse 3 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. I want you to notice that word covetousness. Covetousness. Some Bibles, your Bible may use the word greed, which gets to it as well. This is a Greek word which is used 10 times in the New Testament. It means to exploit uh, it means to take something from someone. It's used here in the same sense that it's used in the, uh, I think it's the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife. Same thing. Coveting means wanting something that doesn't belong to you. That someone else has. And you become obsessed over that. Someone else's spouse in this context. Your neighbor's spouse. Seeking to gain something by taking possession of something. This is a sexual sin that happens in the mind. Coveting. My old lady makes me miserable. But I bet Johnny's wife, she'd be good to me. She's purtier. And all of a sudden, boom, coveting is born. So Paul tells us here in Ephesians 5 that sinful desire after someone who is not your spouse is wrong. It's covetousness. So this would be coveting your neighbor's husband who makes six figures and gives her nice cars. This would be coveting your neighbor's wife who dresses so pretty. It's coveting. It's sexual immorality. It's entertaining fantasy with them and it's wrong. It's sinful. It's selfish. Notice something interesting as well about uh, this down in verse 5. Just skip real quick down to verse 5. In the middle of verse 5, it says this. Everyone who is sexually immoral and pure and who is covetous, there's that word, that is an idolater. Paul is linking covetousness with idolatry. What in the world does idolatry have anything to do with covetousness? Like, I, I'd imagine the last time you coveted after something, you weren't imagining. You maybe have, like, felt convicted, but you didn't imagine you're, like, bowing down at some wooden altar. Like, you didn't feel like that was the kind of sin you committed. But in Paul's mind, coveting and idolatry, they're the same. He says the same thing. In, I think it's Colossians 3, verse 5 or something. The covetousness is the same as idolatry. These are the same. How is it that coveting is idolatry? Think about what idolatry is. It's seeking after a false god, usually one made of stone or wood or uh, something like that, for answers or deliverance. God, will you send the rain to my crops to grow? Would you heal my baby? It's praying to a non-god for some answer, that I would give an offering and that you would bring an answer. That's what idolatry is. Take my offering, meet my need. And Paul says, Cornerstone, coveting your neighbor's spouse is the same. 
So you go to this idol and you say, here's my need. My old lady's mean to me. She doesn't make me happy anymore. We don't have enough sex. He doesn't provide well for me. He says mean things to me. I'm miserable in this marriage. These are our needs. So we look to someone else, some other person, to meet those needs for us. Here's my offering. Here's what I need. Bring it to me. It's idolatry. It's worshiping an idol. Verse 3 ends with this phrase, this statement, that these sins must not even be named among you. There must not even be a hint of them in your life. Brothers, not even a hint. There's no place in the life of a follower of Jesus for sexual sin. It's unfitting. It has no place. Now that's not meant to discourage anyone. Just the opposite. It's meant to embolden you, to search your heart. David prayed, search my heart. Is there any sin, any sexual sin in my heart? Search me, know me. Is there anything in here that I should confess to you? Because these are serious matters. So take out your application card. Your, inside your connection card, you got, you got an application. Inside there, you're going to have uh, an application point. Write this down. Search your heart for sex- sexual sin. And then repent. Search your heart for sexual sin and then repent. Whatever it looks like. Lust. Coveting. Impure desires. Whatever it is. Search your heart and repent. Then goes, Paul goes on to say in verse 4. And let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So Paul tells the Ephesians church. We not just we don't sin with just our body and our mind. You can sin sexually with your words. Filthy language and coarse joking and vulgarity. Any indecency of speech. Somebody's like, dang, that was like my go to party joke. Man, you just took that straight away from me. Now what the what am I gonna say to all these people at a party? Well, it's just unfitting in the life of a believer. Here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, how we talk about sex matters. I.e., the very words we use matter. Because coarse jesting and filthy language, vulgarity, it's unfitting of a Christian. We can't use it. After last week and this week, <laughs> somebody's like, man, am I allowed to say anything? Am I allowed to talk about anything at all? Um, well, maybe not. I don't know. I never hung out with you, but so maybe, maybe you don't need to talk. But it's just out of place for a Christian to use vulgar language, sexually explicit language. Look, words, phrases which demean women, degrade women, degrade people of any kind, it's, it's wrong. The sort of language that's so popular in hip-hop music, it's wrong. Those adjectives of women, they're wrong. They're sinful. They are never appropriate in the life and from the mouth of a Christian. Never. No exceptions. I don't care if it is a joke. I don't care if it is funny. No. Coarse joking. Sinful.
Look, I, I like to goof around too. I mean, as a guy, I like a dirty joke as much as anybody else. But you know what? As a follower of Jesus, there's just no place. There's just no place for it. There, there are many reasons for this. You know, first of all, who, who it is that you represent. You read the book of James. How, how can a, words of praise come from this mouth and words of sin come from this mouth? It's the same, same spout, spouting praise, and then it, you're spouting curses. So, so there's one thing. You, you carry the name of Christ, and therefore you have to elevate your language to a higher level because of who you represent. That's one reason. Another reason is a, is a matter of mission. It's a matter of mission. Think about it like this. If in your life, people hear you using language which demeans women and degrades women, then you have then now disqualified yourself from that person ever thinking of you when they have to come to you because the old man's being mean to them and abusing them verbally. Because you're just the same. I'll put it in another context. Get a little bit more personal. Gay jokes. Unfitting for a Christian. Because when we use them, when we participate in them, and when we even laugh at them, if someone who is around us struggles with same-sex attraction, you have now made yourself unsafe as a person to come to and ask for prayer and say, will you please help me because I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. In a room this size, there's bound to be someone in here who struggles against same-sex attraction. And if we entertain any language which demeans and harms and puts down and uses coarse words and filthy language towards homosexuality, we have now become unsafe for that person to say, hey, please pray for me. When God has given us the mission to reach out to these people who are struggling with this sin in their life. And we're supposed to come by them and hold their hand and pray with them and say, Lord Jesus, please save. And they're not going to come to you. Use a gay joke. You're just like everyone else. You're just like the church they thought you were. It's just unfitting. It's a serious matter. God has called us as his people to be those who can reach out to women who have been abused, who have been mistreated, to those who struggle with same-sex attraction, to be a message of hope and life, to speak to them the truth of God's love, the truth of what God has created sexuality to be and to mean and to look like. And, and, and when we participate in filthy language, we disqualify ourselves from being the vessel that the Holy Spirit might use to reach that person. Are you following me? One more thing about the, the issue of communication and speech. These instructions apply to verbal and nonverbal forms of communication. Listen carefully. As a follower of Jesus, what you share on Facebook and what you share on Instagram, it's the same as you actually saying it yourself when you like something. I see this sometimes on my feed where these people who profess to be Christians will, will share posts which are altogether inappropriate and demeaning to women. Are you kidding me? Just disqualified yourself from anyone ever wanting to reach out to you and say, will you pray with me? Will you help me find help? So what we speak matters even what we don't speak but the, the communications we share non-verbally they matter it applies point number two application point two no sexually immoral words none simple as that rid your vocabulary and your social communication 
with the sort of language which does not honor the Lord Jesus Christ. No double entendres. No innuendos. It's just not fitting for a follower of Jesus. That was a tough one. That was a tough one. Let me confess to you, look, I spent hours in this passage this week and um, a couple of years ago, it's been probably three or four years ago now, where the Lord really convicted me heavily of the language that I used towards homosexuality specifically. Uh, You know, I used to exchange the word lame for gay. You know what I mean? By that, you know, if you would say, that team's so lame, I would say gay. And that was wrong. And the Lord convicted me of it, and um, I, I didn't use it for a number of years. And you know what? Yesterday I used it that way. It just slipped out in front of my wife. This is tough. This isn't easy. There's a reason why James said that if you master the tongue, you've mastered everything. And this is the last thing to go. It's tough. It's not an easy thing. I'm not saying it's an easy thing. Following Jesus is not an easy thing. Living the gospel is not an easy thing. You have to give your life to it. You have to give every part of your life to it. A couple more things and we'll wrap. Verse 5. Real quick. This is a serious matter. Verse 5. Down to verse 6. As Paul says, make sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no... Pl- no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath comes upon the sons of disobedience. Uh, look, I just wanted to make it a point and share with you that this is a serious, serious matter. This is a serious, serious matter. These are serious sins. Sexually immoral people, impure people, and coveters will not enter heaven. Now I want you to understand, um, the sin, individual sin, of committing sexual immorality, or impurity, sexual impurity, or some kind of other coveting, lust, whatever, that sin in and of itself is not going to send you to hell. But the sort of person who has heard God's plan for them in their life, and rejected the gospel, and rejected God's lordship over their life, including their sexual life, and rejected God's plan, and decided to live their own way, that's the kind of person which will not inherit the kingdom of God in Christ. And I hope none of us are guilty of this. For those of you who are in Christ, who have put your faith and trust in the Lord, let me just say this. One more time. There's just no place for making light of sexual sin. Do you see what happens when you do? When we make light of this particular sin, we participate in the sort of justification that is used by non-Christians to live that sort of life. Because, oh, he, he's okay with it. He's cool with it. He's down with it. Look, I have to be sensitive here because I know probably everyone in this room knows someone who is either living a life of homosexuality or living in an adulterous life, a life of fornication. You probably know people. You're probably very close with those people. And you know it's those close relationships which God intends to use to help bring that person to a saving knowledge of Christ. But it's also that closeness of that relationship which oftentimes I have found leads Bible-believing Christians to compromise on this matter. I was told in a counseling session a couple of years ago, we like God, we believe in Jesus, but we won't go to church because we have close friends of ours who are lesbians. And we can't believe a teaching that would say that those people are going to hell. They love each other. This is a serious matter. It's very intricate. And it takes a whole lot of wisdom in the Holy Spirit 
in order for you to carry the message of love and salvation to those people living in sin. Because the wrong message is to point fingers and, and, and to damn them to hell. But the right response is to be at the very gates of hell, pleading with them, praying with them, loving them, accepting them. Those people, those friends of ours who are not married and shacking up together, pleading with them, not preaching at them, just praying for them. But don't, don't make light of that sin because then we participate in that justification that it's an okay thing to do. And you just read the seriousness. Those aren't my words. Those aren't mine. One more point, we'll wrap up. Go back up to verse 4. We'll end on this note. A solution to sexual sin in verse 4. Don't say bad things. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. Not like the holiday with turkey and football, right? Somebody's like, how do the Dallas Cowboys have anything to do with... No, it's not that kind of thanksgiving. It's giving thanks, gratefulness, gratitude. So I have a question about this text. How does thanksgiving... How is thanksgiving an antidote to sexual sin? How is it even related? It doesn't even seem like they're even close to being related. And I think it goes back to what we said earlier. What makes sexual behavior sinful, one of the things is that it's selfish. It does what it wants, appeals to its own appetite, serves its own you know, desires regardless of God's moral code and the good of others. It just seeks to use sex to uh, appease its own desires. It's internal. What do I get? What does it give to me? What can you do for me? How can you feed me? In Thanksgiving, whenever the Bible talks about Thanksgiving, it always puts it in thanking God for something. And what that does is that causes us to not look at ourselves, but to look to God. It causes us to look at what we have, not what we don't have, and to look to God. Thanksgiving is the opposite of covetousness. Covetousness is looking at what you don't have and wanting that thing and doing whatever it takes to get that thing, obsessing over that thing. But thanksgiving is not looking out there, but looking in here what we have and thanking God for what we have. This is how this works in the life of a non-married person. Thank the Lord for what you have. Not for what you don't have. If all you are... If, if you're not married and you're, all you think about is what you don't have, the woman you don't have, the man you don't have, the, the sex you don't have, the stuff you don't have, if that's all you're thinking about, you're going to make yourself miserable. You're going to give way to coveting. You're going to be looking at other things to feed those what you don't have desires. And so Paul says, let there be thanksgiving. Instead of focusing on what you don't have, look at what you do have. Look at what God has given you. You desire to be married, that's a good thing. You desire a spouse, that's a good thing. You can thank God for the extra time that you have. Money that you have. You don't have to buy flowers. You don't have to buy chocolates. There's a lot of money you can use on other things. Like serve the church and all the extra time that you would have to minister to the Lord. Isn't that what Paul is talking about in, in 1 Corinthians 7? Is that some of you, God has given you the gift of singleness and the reason for that is so that you can serve his purpose, his mission? If God has given you the gift of singleness, and it is a gift, we don't talk about it enough, but it is a gift, use that to serve God's purpose in your life. But if you desire to be married, then that's a good thing. Thank the Lord for that. Thank the Lord for what you do have. To those of us who are married, thank the Lord for your spouse. Amen. Thank the Lord for the man or the woman that God has given you. Instead of focusing what you don't have, what they don't do, Instead of focusing on, like, she doesn't keep a clean house. He doesn't make enough money. We don't have enough of this. We don't have enough of that. Instead of focusing on all what you don't have, thank the Lord for what you do have. And I promise you, it will fix marital problems, being thankful for what you do have, a companion in life, someone to help you through this difficult thing following Jesus. Thank the Lord for what you have.
Be thankful. You understand what you do when all you do is focus on what you don't have in a marriage? You're just making yourself miserable by building a cage around yourself. You're trapping yourself in your own marriage and making yourself miserable. Start thanking the Lord for your husband, for your wife. Instead of thinking about what this guy has and, he, and your old man doesn't have. He's got a six-pack and my man drinks a six-pack. You know, he, he makes six figures and my man doesn't. Instead of focusing on what you don't have, be thankful for what God has given you. And, and, and my last point on applying thankfulness to overcome sexual immorality um, is directed towards anyone who has struggled with pornography. Thankfulness can be an antidote, probably not the only, against um, the, the addiction to pornography. Because it's built on lust, right? You know, it's, it's looking at what someone else has that you don't have, and you, you use that thing, you take that thing from them to satiate your own desires. That's really what it is. And thankfulness is the opposite. It's thanking the Lord for what you do have. It's not looking outside, it's looking upward. It's thanking God for what He has given you. So when you feel tempted to sin, start thanking the Lord for what you do have. Instead of focusing on what you want that you can't get or you don't have or she doesn't do or He doesn't do, thank the Lord for what you do have. It's one of the ways that God will help you out of that addiction. So my last point, the application point three is this. Thank the Lord for the station of your life. Just thank Him for your station. If your station is single, thank Him for that station. If, you're, if your station is married and happy, thank Him for that. If your station is married and less than happy, thank Him. If your station is, I'm not really sure, thank Him. Just thank the Lord for the station that you have. It, cha- it will change the way you approach relationships. It will change the way you approach life in general. Stand to your feet. Something we like to do at the end of the, of the service here. Mary, if you can come back, just play something. Thank you. Something I like to do at the end of the service, three things, to reflect, to repent, and pray. Take a couple of moments at the end of the service. I'm going to reread the passage. And I just want you to focus on God's word. And if there's anything in this passage which you need to repent for, that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of, then repent. We're going to give a couple of minutes. She's going to play a song. We're going to give you an opportunity to repent for these things. Not out loud. I don't, I don't need to know. But you're just going to repent before the Lord. Because here's the thing. I'm a realist. Every person standing in this room has been or will be guilty of sexual sin. Every one of us. You don't you can't walk through this life without being guilty of this particular sin. Some of us it's gonna happen later, some of it's already happened in the past, but here's the thing. When Jesus gave his life on the cross for sin, he died for your past sin. He died for your present sin. And can I get a thank you, Jesus? He died for your future sin. Thank you, Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have put your faith in Him, if you have trusted in Him for your salvation, then here's the great news. When you confess with your mouth, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It doesn't play a part. It doesn't define you. It's not who you are. He's cleaned it up for you. And so when we read this passage again, let it convict you. Let the Holy Spirit convict you and repent and know and rejoice in the fact that God has done this in your life. And then as she's praying, if you need anything you want prayer for, Brent and I will stick around for a few minutes and you can come forward and we'll pray with you. Maybe you've been abused in the past. Maybe you've been hurt in the past. Whatever it is, we would love to pray with you. Maybe if you want to put your faith and trust in Christ for the first time and be saved eternally, 
Come on up. We'll pray with you. My prayer is not going to save you. Jesus saved you. But I would love to pray with you. Ephesians chapter 5. Flee sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness. It must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word that it stands above us and instructs us in the ways in which we are to honor the Lord who saved us. And with my dear friends, my brothers and sisters here, I confess that I have been guilty of sexual immorality, of coveting. Father, search my heart and search the hearts of your people and convict us of the sin that lays inside. We confess, Father, that we are guilty. And we ask you to forgive us of our sins and to cause us to understand the grace and the mercy of our God and to rejoice from this day forward that our sin has been paid for. It doesn't define us not attached to us it has been forgiven because you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God thank you for sending your son and forgiving our sins in general and sexual sins in specific in Jesus name Jesus praise amen